0: My name is Pavli Adamich. I'm the CEO and founder of Aether. Aether's only purpose is to build the post-scarcity future, create a new industrial manufacturing paradigm which enables the construction of any good or material at almost no cost.
1: Welcome to Founders First, a podcast by 1517 Fund. This is a deep dive conversation into how exactly founders of venture-backed startups get started. We look at what led them to their ideas, how they did customer discovery, built their first products, and landed their first customers. And you are along for the ride. Welcome to Founders First.
0: it means we're taking the machinery that lets nature build anything from a tree to a whale and using it to build human products and reverse engineering it using machine learning and robotics. So basically cutting the human out of the loop, turning it into a data science problem where our customers come to us and say, I want this molecule, I want this material. And the robots and the AI work together to figure out how do you build these tiny little nanomachines called enzymes uh, that your body and every living thing uses, how do you reverse engineer those machines to build the material the customer wanted to the extent that you can
1: talk about it um how how have you guys been able to build that process
0: yeah um as with a lot of these kind of things a complex edition of many uh well you were just you just showed me your laboratory right yeah so it's it's and and the thing that I always try to stick because I this was a mistake I made a few days ago and it led to a complete misinterpretation. There's not just one thing that makes this possible. In the past five years, and really the past two to three years, the combination of improvements in machine learning for molecular representations, improvements in robotics um, and analytics, has enabled a totally new kind of robotic factory. So maybe I'll step back and talk about what used to be the standard and how we've made it completely different. So. The way everyone does robotics today in biotech isn't idiotic because when I was doing synthetic biology manually, it, I felt like a robot half the time. Um, so, but what they're doing is they're automating a human in the laboratory, and so that's a decent paradigm. It's definitely better than a human doing it, but it's inherently incredibly limiting. There's a can lot of.
1: You, can you give me an example of what that might look like.
0: Yeah. So, uh, let's say, for example, you are. Uh, in a lot of biotech, your protocols can be summed up as take a bunch of liquids in different tubes, mix them together in a certain order, heat and cool them in a certain pattern, and then filter them. Like Actually, a lot of the protocols can be more or less boiled down to that. Um, and you have this problem where the way a human would do it is they would, on their desk or little lab bench, they would arrange a bunch of tubes and the, you know, the receiving and doni- donating tubes. And they'd have their little thermocycling machine called a thermocycler. It's a clever name. And they would use a pipetter, which is just move small amounts of liquid, control the amounts of liquid back and forth, and they just kind of mix them and then take the final tube, put in the thermocycler, and move on. And the way that kind of gets representation represented in automation today is you have more or less a robotic arm moving a pipetter. You have a flat kind of two-dimensional board that the pipetter arm can reach where there's all these tubes, and that's primarily its function. Now, the challenge is, is let's even just assume that you want to do the same volume, so human-sized volumes, you have inherent limitations of the fact that you've decided you're somehow limited to a two-dimensional board, that there isn't some kind of feeding assembly line or anything like that. For some reason, you've decided that, because think about the steps I just outlined, take move liquids from donating tubes to receiving tubes, heat cool, filter. That's a linear process. It should be possible to extrapolate and say, okay, what are the core movements that are important of, of liquids? And do those really all have to be done by one robotic arm? Or could you imagine a more stamp-like mechanism where here's the first motion and only one system does that. Here's the second motion of liquid and another system only does that. And then you could imagine paralyzing that and getting incredible throughputs through that. That's the kind of thing where it's, there isn't any biotech automation today that behaves that way. But it's the kind of thing that would lead to massive improvements in efficiency, and this kind of goes to the underlying fallacy of this industry. Where and I don't think this is malicious, but it's it's something that people try to use to their advantage. People assume that automation equals economies of scale, which is not true. Um, you'll hear people talk about, oh, we're automating biotech, and it's like Henry Ford and the assembly line. Like that's not well. First off, Henry Ford did not have robots at the time, so that's number one. What assembly line economics or economies of scale or any however you want to call it, that phenomenon is the process of standardization of protocols and then parallelization from that standardization, which enables massive improvements in your capacity to produce. And so because we're still automating a human in a lab, which is a very kind of single action user oriented process where one arm one user does a bunch of things rather than a bunch of very simple things doing very simple operations well, like in a row. ford's
1: ford's real innovation was replaceable parts right
0: right right. right. and so but that, that's the standardization right this idea that a uh car a model t is made of i don't know let's say 250 parts i I have no idea what the real number was, Um, but it's always the same parts. Or, and then when they added color, it was always mostly the same parts with some flavors on top of it. But that process requires you to standardize what are the components that lead up to a car. And then you could have this huge funnel of things coming together where, you know, cars rolling off the assembly line every five minutes. I forgot what the number was. And the problem is that what you see today is very much like a, and this metaphor is now becoming strained, but I'll I'll push it a little bit forward is a human artisanally making a car, but now a robot artisanally doing that. That was you're leaving out the replaceable parts element, right? Um, And so you can, you need both, you need standardization. So the replaceable parts idea, and you need to, from that standardization, think of what is the best way automation can service that goal? Um, Because, The way automation is done today does not really service that goal, at least not in an effective manner whatsoever. You don't really see assembly lines in modern-day biotech automation. And when you do see them, they are very rarely well put together. I mean, the only example I actually have that I think is good is Synthego's system. But that's because Synthego has, like, one thing it does. Realistically, Synthego is actually, like, one protocol.
1: The few that I've seen, they all seem very much jerry-rigged.
0: Yes. So, I mean, ours is kind of jerry-rigged right now. But you're an early stage
1: company. I'm exactly. Talking, I'm talking about like multi-billion dollar companies yeah. I've seen with jerry-rigged systems. Exactly.
0: And I, and I think part of the problem is that some companies don't have a choice. Biology is very variable. Uh, and so, depending on what your business model is, depending on what your product actually is, you sometimes have no choice. Um, I mean, like the microbe engineering companies out there some of them have to deal with a totally different microbe every new contract. And like I've heard stories of like, you know, imagine you have a protocol that works well and you have all this automation that works well for one microbe that's, you know, likes to grow in liquid and it's fine and it's like water viscosity and then imagine your next contract is a microbe whose viscosity can be best described as oil mixed with ketchup, right? Like, (laughs) everything's (laughs) fucked. Um, Like, just everything is different now and so, there are reasons why other companies literally cannot do that because it's like Ford is trying to make a car and then a submarine and then a floating submarine and it's like, what the fuck's going on every single time and so there's inherent limitations in that. That's more of a business model side. Mm.
1: Yeah, and, and what makes it that what you guys are doing doesn't fall into those categories?
0: So it really has to, right now our automation isn't that spectacularly optimized. Um, we've prioritized time to market rather than optimization. Um, so we do use a lot of kind of out-of-the-box stuff that's slightly modified. It's the standardization, right? So at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're engineering enzymes, these tiny little nanomachines, to manufacture a chemical or material, but at the end of the day, it's always a chemical that a customer wants. And so what we standardize is we want to generate data where we test many different versions of an enzyme against many different chemicals to see what that relationship is. Because in a perfect world, you'd have a magical black box where you could come to and say, I want this drug, I want this material, and it tells you, here's the enzyme that does it, right? But we don't live in that world.
1: So what do we do now if we say
0: like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> what do we do now? Uh, it's really fun. It's and and I, there's a lot of smart people who do this. It's not that they're not intelligent. It's just the fact that it's it's this incredibly so. This is phenomenal. It is such an error-prone trial and error failure-prone system. I mean, this industry is one where. If companies, if our customers tr- pay one of our competitors to train engineer an enzyme, the assumption is almost that they're probably going to fail. Which means that these contracts are built around this insane level of risk aversion, because it's not like you pay them and it comes back in a year and a half. It's like you pay them and a year and a half later, probably your tits up. Like that's it. So, but the to more more specifically on a technical level, what happens today is when you think about engineering enzyme, if you have an enzyme that, let's say makes your product at 1% efficiency, getting it from 1% to 90% is relatively straightforward. And the reason why that's true is because you can do artificial selection to walk up the fitness landscape. And that's just a random walk up a fitness landscape. So generally, mathematically, that tends to work. Um, So when you look at enzyme engineering as a discipline, it's mostly been restricted to cases where someone found activity in the first place. So contracts will typically be phrased where I pay you a little bit of money, you check all your enzymes in your library to see if there's any activity at all. If there is, we move forward. If not, whatever, we'll move on. Um, and the failure rate's like 90% or something. And, and at this point, most people don't even try um, because they think it's not gonna work. The challenge is how do you get to something with a little bit of activity from no activity whatsoever? And so what's different with us is because we're building neural networks that understand the relationship between changes in the enzyme design and their function, we're not doing a random walk-up a fitness landscape. We're mapping the fitness landscape. And so what that enables us to do is say, okay, well, the customer wants this, and we've never seen that before. But based off this huge database we have and all its activity we've seen before and all these variations, we think these 5,000 candidates are likely. And then we can iteratively move through that landscape, through that fitness landscape, until we find activity in the first place.
1: Okay. So, how did you end up in a position where you thought this sounds like an interesting thing to build? <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, long, long, long story. Um, and it's very heavily involved in my background. So at a high level, I've been obsessed with a variation of this problem pretty much as long as I can remember. Um, not enzyme engineering specifically. That's a weirdly nuanced thing. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's weirdly specific. Like a four-year for the people that exactly, I know. Exactly, exactly. Like a four-year-old thinking like, oh, "Let's do enzyme right. engineering." <laughs> no, it's it's more the fact. So my parents came here just when war broke out, just before war broke out in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, and so they were grad students when I was born. They couldn't afford daycare. I grew up in their laboratories playing with instruments. Safely disconnected, of course, uh, I think. Um, I don't remember, obviously. But um, And so I was constantly surrounded by technology. Technology was very real to me, as real as the playground. But at the same time, I was living, this was currently in, at the time at Boulder, Colorado. Uh, everything was nice in Boulder. It was fine. And I had friends in Yugoslavia living next to craters. And so my entire life, I've been obsessed with the fact that, uh, I used to say passionate, but it's really an obsession. It's very unhealthy the fact that there is human suffering in the world, and I view it as my personal responsibility to fix that problem. And in elementary school, I started thinking about the problem of scarcity. And this isn't a particularly controversial idea. It was clear to me that, you know, because I read a lot about, I love reading about history, um, and kind of understanding how that affects the present day. And it was clear that things were very good in the United States, partially, not entirely, but partially because the necessary prerequisites for stable economic growth were there, right? We don't really have scarcity in the United States. We have people who are very poor. So you mean like the natural resources Yeah, natural resources and industrial manufacturing. I mean, the fact that you can go to Costco and buy however much toilet paper you want, right? like just however much, um, is somewhat facetious, but also kind of insane for the rest of the world. And so we have this ability to so dramatically overproduce everything we need that the majority of people in the United States can live lives that are so much better than anyone else. And people see this as a bad thing. Consumption is a bad thing. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think it has pros and cons, but I do view a very fundamental human right, the ability, the freedom to consume, the freedom to have a life that you would like to have, which consumption is a part of. And so there was this idea in elementary school of like, okay, well, clearly we've got a lot of stuff and that has helped make things stable. And it was this idea of, which again, not very controversial, if a parent, a mother or father can't provide for their family anymore it becomes much easier to get them to commit atrocities right that's when countries like enough people a critical mass cross that line bad shit happens really really fast right it doesn't
1: even need to be a majority of people exactly it, it could be a, be a small subset enough, yeah. and then
0: everything blows up um and so the question i was thinking about was okay well how do we make that line impossible to cross like how does that become you know not not curing cancer but how do we make it so that everyone on earth can generally for the most part provide for their families or at least has the optionality to do so and so when I started thinking about this, um, started thinking about how you could potentially solve this. I was very fortunate in middle school and then much more so in high school. I was fortunate enough to start doing research in synthetic biology. A professor took me in, just kind of let me do whatever the hell I wanted. And this was through your
1: parents or no, actually so uh,
0: my parents, one of my, my father's professor at UC Davis, my mother's at Sac State, actually not at all. Kind of interestingly, Um, it was a, I did some work at Sacramento state through a summer program. And then in high school, uh, a there was a my high school had a um, biotech class and so there was um, one of the labs in the second semester you would get assigned to some lab to do research and most of the kids got like industry jobs where they were kind of doing grunt work I was fortunate because in one of the first labs of that biotech class we were growing some bacteria and observing how their population grew over time and there's kind of this S-shaped curve where they grow really quickly and then they stop growing so quickly and I am obsessed and almost fetishize large data sample to collection. So I took way more samples than anyone else did of like time points. And I noticed that every single time the, da- the population would grow really, really quickly and then it would dip and then it would go back to normal. But there was always a dip. And so we were growing this weird microbe that I'd never heard of before. It wasn't E. coli or anything like that. I looked it up, I found out there's a professor at UC Davis. I was in Davis at the time. Professor UC Davis, who specialized in bacteria. And I didn't really make the connection, which was kind of dumb of me. So I emailed him and I was like, hey, I noticed this. What's this? And I got into his lab the second semester and I just stayed there for the rest of high school. I kind of skipped class a lot of the time to do research. And the two key things I learned, just learning about synthetic biology and and doing it all the time, was one, nature had evolved incredibly sophisticated machinery over billions of years. It was clear that there was technology there that was so much more powerful than anything humans had ever engineered before. I mean, there are turbines that are hundreds of nanometers across that are the reason why you can maintain energy levels in your body. Um, and they're literally turbines, and there's trillions of them in your body. Um, and so that's just an example. But so one, it was clear that nature was incredibly powerful and could solve this problem of scarcity. Like the, that, that was starting to connect in my brain. But the other problem was, is that we have no idea what we're doing when we're engineering biology. It's actually pretty catastrophically bad. And how did that become clear to you? It's just the fact that, so I walked in with the very naive thought that biological engineering was kind of like auto engineering. It's like, you know, you have a blueprint, you put it together, it goes, drives out the the garage door. Uh, It's not like that at all. It's incredibly trial and error based. It's... I don't mean this in a completely pejorative sense, but there is that there. Uh, It's a little bit like voodoo witchcraft. Like a lot of the time you try a bunch of things and one of them works or doesn't work and you have no idea why. And the reason is is because it's such a complex machine, right? It's like trying to like take a motherboard and trying to tweak individual lines of silicon on there to figure out what its total function is, right? Of course, it's almost like voodoo witchcraft And, and you don't know what the motherboard actually looks like. So you're just randomly tweaking stuff. So that was both disappointing, but also one of the immediate observations I had in high school was this idea of automation, right? I would just like plug in ear pods or not ear pods that didn't exist back then, uh, earphones, earbuds, whatever the word is.
1: Some um, sort of headphone.
0: Some sort of headphone, music listening device. And I would listen to music and just move liquid. And that would be like four hours every afternoon. And so one, okay, automation is clearly desperately needed here because I am not good at doing this. I miss tubes sometimes because there's hundreds of replicates and it could be done so much faster and I could be freed up to do the design work, which is what humans are good at or at least better at. So that was leaving high school. And I also tried to do a startup in high school this was the idea. I was going to take my research to UC Davis. I was going to engineer these microbes to produce bioplastics. This was right when the bioplastic crash happened. So a terrible time to raise money from VCs for a bioplastic startup. So, you know, I just got like myself just destroyed out there. I uh, snuck to San Francisco. I tell my parents, I was like going to a friend's house, take the car and just like haul ass to San Francisco to try and pitch VCs. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it did not work, uh, which is very good. Um, so then I went, I did undergrad. Um, uh UC Santa Cruz I studied astrophysics and bioengineering, finished bioengineering, didn't finish astrophysics. And the thing that started to become apparent, I started doing a lot of computational work. And one project in particular I worked on, which I won't go into too much detail about because it's it's semi-ancillary, but was uh are you familiar with Planet Nine? Uh very loosely. Yeah, it's okay. Um it's in my second year, uh this these rock star astrophysicists in Caltech did simulations of the orbits of deep outer solar system objects and showed that, you know, all the orbits were super lopsided to one side of the solar system. And the only way to explain that, because angular momentum is conserved, was for a huge object to be orbiting the other side. And the proof was actually pretty astonishing. They basically said, okay, well, if this object exists, then there should be objects that are going at 90 degree angle at these exact positions. And they found them within five minutes. <laughs> um, so, like, it's very clear it's there. I
1: recall this being referred to as like planet X at one point. Exactly. Planet X, planet
0: nine. It was a whole thing at one point. It's kind of died down. And so the mathematical and orbital astrodynamical proof is very clear. Like there's definitely an object out there. There's basically no other explanation for those orbits. And we pretty much know where in the night sky it is now. And so what I did was uh, uh, I was in a class with a professor. I approached him and I said, well, hey, why don't I put together a team and see if we've seen it already? because we weren't looking for a ninth planet like what if we saw it and it was in our databases like no one would have noticed it was just another dot so i built an algorithm to try to determine if planet 9 was there published a paper that said no (laughs) very much not uh not in our existing databases but the thing that was important from that experience was there was this huge data terabytes and terabytes of images of the night sky and various spectra uh, or various wavelengths of light there was this huge amount of data, um, very, very complex rules governing the orbits and what is an orbiting body and what isn't, what's a star and what's an asteroid and what might be planet nine. But we knew that at its core, there are very deterministic rules that govern them, right? It wasn't random, there were rules. And same thing in biology. It's all complex and chaotic and all these very, very high order interactions between different uh, entities, but there are rules. Like an enzyme is a very complex machine, but it's a machine. Maybe probabilistic, but it's still a machine. It's not a random hodgepodge of atoms. Just like you could say that
1: the universe is a
0: exactly. machine. Right. Exactly. There there are there are rules behind its functionality. And that's, you know, probably a very generous phrase to use the word machine for now. Anything that has a set of rules is a machine, but uh But you're saying it's not probabilistic. It's it, it's not and, and, and what I mean by that is it, it's still it can still be probabilistic in the sense that it's driven by random motion potentially or by oscillations like a lot of machines at the nanoscale actually work only in the nanoscale because they require random oscillations and everything to move it's kind of interesting actually Um, but those probabilities are predictable it's not the sense that if you talk to people who have worked in biology for a long time it's not it's not actually a black box it's just a very complex tens of thousands of black boxes and so what I started thinking about was, okay, well, there are there must be rules. And so therefore it must be possible for us to build algorithms to maybe not understand the rules, but maybe at least predict from the rule base, right? In the same way that a neural network can recognize a cat image better than a human can, which it still surprises me. I don't know how you wouldn't recognize a cat, but apparently that's true. In the same way that I don't know,
1: man, have you ever seen those images that has it's like a three by three grid and sometimes they're pictures of like donuts and t- sometimes that's pictures true of cats
0: that's true i will say that captcha sometimes it's like click all the ones that have a fire hydrant i'm like is that a fire hydrant so that is fair there's probably edge cases where it's like i don't really know if that is a cat though by the way the company that monetized CAPTCHA is fucking brilliant
1: oh um yeah the the, the founder went off to start duolingo it's the same guy
0: Wow. Yeah. So that was awesome. What a clever idea. Yeah. They're, they're uh, both Google ventures. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's basically using the human population as your own mechanical Turk. It's crazy. But that idea was, okay, well, you know, you can't sit down and write all the rules of what is a cat image and what isn't a cat image. It's not possible. Or at least it's not finitely possible. But clearly neural networks can do it. So then I started thinking, well, okay, what if we do this in synthetic biology? Right. There's huge potential if it works.
1: Do you think you would have seen that analogy had you not been working in the lab in high school?
0: No, because I was the advantage that gave me is there is this learning period where you really quickly fail a lot and then learn a lot about how you do these protocols, how you actually do scientific research. And I think the advantage of doing it in high school was I was not constrained by the need to write papers. Or to submit grants. I didn't have to constrain my research to any sort of NIH or NSF requirements, which, you know, is a very true fact. If you're a PhD student today, to a large extent, you live or die by the fact, can you write papers? Which is deeply unfortunate because it's skewing the entire point. So I didn't have any of those constraints. I don't know how much money of my PI I used. I probably burned through quite a bit of his money uh, now that I think about it. But I was still able to learn and to think about how do you do engineering and biology? How do you fail, fail, fail again and learn from those mistakes. So I don't think so because the undergraduate classes I took were not helpful at all. You know, some professors are good, a lot were bad, but the majority of stuff I learned was from that kind of trial and error apprenticeship-like experience in high school and then later in undergrad when I was just doing research. I think that's why it's incredibly important that people in high school and middle school do real hands-on work like that, whether it's mechanical engineering, whether it's art, you know, videography or philosophy or like just getting out there. Because by the time you're in high school, your brain is sufficiently developed to start doing serious stuff. And you really give yourself a significant advantage because you are well ahead of what society thinks you should be at by the time you enter, you know, you're 18 and you're supposed to be applying for college. Maybe you apply when you're 17. I don't remember. Um,
1: Yeah. So you did this work on, trying to identify Planet 9, yeah. uh, and you realize, hey, there's an analogy here that mm-hmm. can be applied to mm-hmm. biomachines as well. Yeah. What was the step for you to say, okay, let's see if we can actually build yeah. something out around this?
0: So I think I had always known that I wanted to do this through a startup. I mean, this kind of lifelong obsession of solving this problem, I viewed companies as the most effective kind of mechanism in the world to do that. Uh, politics is just not effective, um, particularly from the perspective of politics is not effective at leveraging technology most of the time. Sometimes it is, but that's when, you know, the Soviets are going to get to the moon before you do. So I actually founded, um, I reached out to a professor at UC Santa Cruz. Um, so I did all this research in various departments. And then I reached out to a professor at Santa Cruz and I said, hey, I want to lead the iGEM team next year. IGEM is an international genetic engineering competition and I thought of it as kind of like a rehearsal. You know, I'll lead a team, I'll get experience doing that, I'll figure out if there's anyone else I want to do it with and then I will think of ideas. I did that, pulled together a team, built out the team, we got some award. I can't even remember anymore. It doesn't really matter. And the things that I learned was that that was kind of the genesis of my, my thinking, okay, well, now I'm definitely going to do something in this space. And the original idea was totally different.
1: So that was like a green light for you to say, like, okay, let's yeah. keep going forward with this.
0: Exactly, because there was some level of inertia. There was some experience. Some, we had filed for provisional patents on this original technology ages ago, which is not even closely related to what this is now. And in my mind, it was always about getting enough momentum going that I could build something like this because high school I'd realized stuff needed to be automated and even the startup I tried to do in high school a lot of it was about at the time there were companies that were starting to come out most of them have folded now that were doing like lab in a cloud stuff where you could pay someone send them samples and they'd have robots do experiments for you the startup in high school was kind of based off that idea of like here's all the experiments I want to do everything I was doing manually I'd like them to do it so going through this iGEM process and founding Aether was based off this idea of definitely automation and then from the astrophysics experience, let's actually build out um, data sets large enough to do serious machine learning on. And, th- and you knew going into iGEM
1: that this is kind of like a trial ground for you to do something more serious with this, yes. right? You, it, didn't, you, you, you weren't thinking like, oh, maybe I'll do this, maybe I won't. Right, exactly. Okay. It was
0: very much so this was testing, To see how this was going to work and how this was going to scale and i think the the interesting thing was i started to look around because this was maybe four years ago now something like that and what was interesting was there were companies starting to come out that were talking about automation and biotech and machine learning and biotech and so i was like okay well that's interesting that makes a lot of sense what i've been thinking about for a while i went to go visit them as a student talk to them And the two really shocking things was, one, this whole idea of inefficient automation and ineffective automation, so not really what I was thinking. And then, two, the realization partially from my numerical computation background was, you know, the kind of really amazing machine learning, what I would call true machine learning that makes Google so effective or anyone else in this, titans in this industry so effective, those kind of algorithms need huge amounts of data, right? They just need gigantic amounts of data in order to work for the most part. And so that was not true in biology, Right. It just wasn't true. No one could generate experimental data. And it wasn't just the automation that was the problem. It was... So, definitely... so wait, wait one second. Yeah, yeah. It's it's
1: not true in the sense that you don't need as much data or just people can't create
0: that data. They can't create that data. Right. Good catch. Okay. You they, You literally cannot generate enough data to use neural networks.
1: Right. Because when we get pitched on things that tend to be machine learning based, almost always the problem becomes, well, what prevents somebody else from doing this, right? And the answer is like, pretty much nothing. Yeah, right?
0: exactly. So that was, and the issue was in, there's the whole first mover thing, mm-hmm which is misused constantly. Yep. First mover advantage does not mean you're the first company in the space. Google was not the first search engine company. First mover means that you have some kind of internal flywheel that once it starts moving, makes it exponentially harder for anyone to ever catch up with you. In Google's case, even though Netscape was the dominant player at the time in like 97 when they first released or 94, I can't remember. Google through PageRank was the first one to be able to effectively index the internet, right? All of it at the time. And Netscape was, desperately trying to index like 1% of it and was doing a terrible job. And so because of that, even though someone like many more startups after Google used variations of PageRank, Google grew so quickly that it became impossible to compete with. So that's, and I would agree with that because for the most part, unless you have that internal flywheel, there really isn't anything stopping someone from copying you. People can violate IP. Like they can do that. And then they just pay a fine a few years later when you sue them. So in my mind, the kind of companies that become gigantic are the ones that have that flywheel in the first place.
1: And you guys have built out yes, that flywheel.
0: We have a very, very big flywheel. The idea is that, uh, yes, so tomorrow, over the next six to eight months, well, actually, over the next four months, we will generate so much data that we'll own 50% of all enzymatic data on Earth. and wait, wait. wait, wait what? Can, so can you repeat the, that? <laughs> yes. So over the next three to four months, So by the time somebody listens to this, you will own 50% of all enzymatic data on Earth. By the time it's the second half of next year, we'll own 90%. 3% of it. And even if I sent someone the blueprint for all the technology that makes this possible, a lot of hardware innovations, um, we'll constantly be layering so many innovations on top of it. The
1: rate at which you're progressing is so high that they won't be able to
0: catch up. Exactly. And
1: this goes back to, to the initial conversation on replaceable parts and the assembly line, right? Right.
0: Because we've standardized these components, we can start thinking about swapping in and out improvements much more easily. It's no longer, you know, from scratch building an entirely new process every time. It's more, okay, this node in the assembly line is inefficient. And because we know exactly what the inputs and outputs are, we can think about how do we improve that node without interrupting the rest of the system in the first place. And even if someone copies the core mechanics today, six months from now, they're a year and a half from getting to the point where we are today. And a year and a half from now, no one will ever be able to catch up. There's a certain point, I call it escape velocity, which is an incredibly buzzwordy term. but No, that makes sense here. That That's actually a pretty
1: good use of that term. Right,
0: here. exactly. And so there's a point at which we're generating so much data and we can service so many contracts so quickly that our ability to throw money at building the factory and expanding it grows so fast that it just doesn't matter anymore.
1: So when you decided that you were, after iGEM, you were going to sit out and do this, can you walk me through... What was that process actually like to get people to listen to you? Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, one of the things that I I like to emphasize in these interviews is how you actually took that first step, right? Yeah. What What was the value proposition you had in mind and who did you go to first?
0: Yeah. So the company initially was a microbe engineering company. It was like, and actually we compared ourselves to enzyme engineering companies by saying they're dumb. They're only replacing one step in the process. Um, So my how the tables have turned. And so the actual thing that started off was pitch competitions. Not the ones that require you to write a business plan. I will never write a 30 page business plan in my life. I will never do that. That's insane. The... Those pitch competitions were one a way to get enough food, money for food. Um, and we won quite a few. So we would just win one every month or two. But the other thing was that occasionally a judge would be an angel investor. And so actually, our first investor, Derek, was a judge at one of those competitions. And so we started talking to him, started getting his advice on stuff. Um, and soon I was able to raise some money from him and some other people. Fifteen seventeen was involved in that round. That was actually like the pre-seed, whatever you want to call it. Um, Your very first, first round. Very first round, exactly. The um, I hate these terms. And we do too. They, <laughs> they don't make <laughs> any sense. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it was really uh, actually pitch competitions that led to that bridge because... How did you find these pitch competitions? I mean, so there were some university resources. um there were that was actually the start, and then it was talking to the judges because we'd usually win, and so we get to know the judges. I'd talk to them, I'd get coffee with them. They'd say, "Hey, there's this other one over here. You should think about applying to," and it kind of grew from there. And then I already had a little bit of a network from my high school attempt to you know blow up in the world of synthetic biology, and so I was able to start bridging over into San Francisco, into Palo Alto, uh, driving over every week or so, um, because the the problem with Santa Cruz was. There are investors there, and a lot of them are good. But the standards for investment and the standards for fundraising are like probably 20 years behind the Silicon Valley. I mean, to the extent where— I mean, that's pretty much any market that's not Silicon Valley or New York. Right, which is shocking, right? And, and Santa Cruz is pretty cool because it's literally a 35-minute drive away. But and, if
1: someone—no, I mean, if someone lives in Santa Cruz, they've selected into Santa Cruz. Yes, for
0: a reason exactly, exactly, and so there's a completely different mindset. I mean, for example, almost all angel investors expected completely fleshed out business plans and like financials going out four years in advance for a company that doesn't even have a lab yet. And so, I, I, I
1: look, Nick and I spend a lot of time on the road yeah. outside of these markets, and we see yeah. this all the time.
0: It's pretty shocking, um, and it would that would be the first step towards making other Silicon Valleys is massively lowering the bar for not lowering the bar, but changing what the standard changing
1: the are. investor mindset. Exactly. I mean this is this is a whole this is a whole set of podcasts unto itself. Exactly. But yeah, and making it so that investors are comfortable, you know, putting 100k, 250k behind what's pretty much an idea at right. that stage. Right. Something that's, that's just tested through this iGem competition.
0: Right, exactly. And so that was it was pitch competitions that really led to the first connections to serious investors who then introduced me to other people who then moved us forward. So, once you
1: had a little bit of that money raised, how did you go from doing, uh, you know, microbe engineering? Because even when I originally came across you through our firm, th- that's what your positioning was. Exactly.
0: It was quite strongly that. Yeah. So, what happened was, and this is an amazing program, and I probably shouldn't... I'll talk publicly about. It. So this something called NSF ICor, mm-hmm. National Science the Customer Discovery Program. Yeah, this is a great program. It is excellent. We, we
1: encourage everyone who can. I would, that This is applicable to go exactly. Through. It's just. Let's talk about that a little bit.
0: Exactly. It's um. I mean, it's a so the there, there's different levels. There's many ICor programs. I think the best ones are the the federal NSF nodes where you actually have to submit for a grant, fifty thousand dollars travel expenses paid for by NSF, and it's a seven-week crash course where you have to do something like 150 interviews, something crazy, uh, of potential customers. And it's using the Lean Launchpad methodology, so you never talk about your technology, you just talk about your customers' problems. And there's this whole strategy to try and take, you know, you have a technology you're thinking about building or are building, you have problems you it solves, and you think they're problems for your customers, and you're trying to figure out what your customers' problems are and see if those line up, yes or no. And then that tells you whether or not people care and will actually pay for your technology. And so NSF iCore was just a phenomenal experience. I mean, unbelievably stressful, a lot of flying about, a lot of driving about, um, and all over the place, all over the world, really. But the biggest learning, what was super consistent was no matter what vertical we were talking to with those pharmaceuticals or not, any sort of chemical manufacturing, people kept saying, when we talked about, okay, you have 20 steps to make your XYZ, whatever, what are the problems there? People would always say something to the effect of, well, steps eight, nine, and 13 are my problems, or two, three, and 12. It was always, subsets of it. And that made sense from the perspective you know, we've gotten really good doing some kinds of manufacturing, but other parts are very new and really bad at it. And so when we were coming in with the mindset of, we'll just make you a microbe that takes sugar and spits out your final product, replacing everything, we were finding that customers actually weren't saying they wanted to replace everything. And so the way I typically do it is that my first interview would be don't talk about the technology at all or any tech- technical solutions. Then I might do a follow-up call if I assume there was no chance of then contaminating other potential interviews. That was not that often, but sometimes I did it. i do a follow-up call where I'd talk about, okay, well, what about these possible solutions? Do those fix them? And so we had this great one guy, I think it was Mitsubishi, uh, this, this process chemistry lead, uh, VP of process chemistry over there. He said, well, look, If you're telling me you're going to build me a microbe to make this product, you're telling me I have to rebuild a $250 million plant. I have to rehire several thousand people, retrain several thousand people. And all of this assumes you can engineer the microbe and scale it in the first place to unbelievably difficult problems. It's actually something people don't don't understand very well. It's not only a problem of engineering the bacteria to do the thing you want it to do, Bacteria really do not like existing in million liter fermenters. They do not like that environment at all. It's incredibly varied. It goes from like zero you know, one pressure, one bar pressure to several thousand bar pressure at the bottom. It's crazy variability. And so there's something called the scaling problem where something will work in the lab and not work at scale. And it's completely a black box. Cause you can't the way you would test that is you would run several thousand Yeah, million biology is some software. Exactly, right. It's it's not the kind of thing where there's so many permutations and so many parameters that you'd have to solve for that the amount of experiments you'd have to run and the expense of running a single million liter fermenter is so great that it's just not possible to solve using that perspective. Um, so this, this was pretty consistent across the board. It was like, step nine is my problem. Fix step nine. That's like 80% of my cost. Can you fix that? And so I started thinking, okay, well, it really sounds like people are talking about enzymes. Like it really sounds like that. And so what happened was is I thought, okay, well, why the hell aren't these enzyme companies all over this right that people are saying they need them what's going on so i actually started going to enzyme companies and i'd always send an email saying i'd love to talk to you i'm a student don't tell me anything confidential i tag you know make sure you do not i'm not interested in content. i just want to understand the industry uh they would still tell me confidential i think they'd like to talk and what i started learning pretty quickly was that there are many many smart people who do enzyme engineering out there but the most of those companies are stuck in the past The way they'll typically approach a project is the customer will approach them, you know, six to nine people will sit around a table, they'll think about what they'll do this week, they'll run a handful of experiments, and then, you know... So you mean they're comfortable? They're comfortable, and they're slow, and there's mild amounts of automation, sometimes maybe kind of, like one thing's automated, sort of, and the machine just doesn't run most of the day. And there's, like, almost no not even machine learning there's almost no significant statistics beyond like regression baseline linear regression or like polynomial regression they're like ooh fancy um and like uh, high school stats yes exactly (laughs) um and so i was kind of like what the fuck (laughs) um like i'm hearing from literally everyone i'm talking to that this could be huge and you're sitting here twiddling your thumbs so, the second thing I did was I talked to these companies that were talking about automation and large scale machine learning. They were all microbe companies specifically, but I still went to go talk to them and uh, to try and understand them better. And some of them are more secretive than others, some of them are way too open about what they do. Um, and the first realization was you know, their automation wasn't. It wasn't the automation that I was seeing in my head. It wasn't an assembly line. So there were clear inefficiencies. Robots were just not doing anything. Like we'd take a tour and I'd watch a machine not be used for the entire extent of the tour. And then maybe it gets used five minutes later. So really bad ROI, really bad um, uh, uptime on all the machines. So not well designed. These are the companies that are trying to solve... Microbe engineering. N- ...number nine in that... No, so they're trying to solve the entire process. They're going. Okay. They're trying to build a microbe to solve the entire process. And just to belabor... Not belabor, but to talk about that point briefly... Those are some pretty big companies. Ginkgo Bioworks has raised, somehow, at this point, hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a whole separate conversation. And uh, Zymergen has raised $600 I mean, they just raised half a billion dollars in the private market, which is nuts. And the reason why they're having so much success, in part, is because microbes actually do make sense for the small sliver of compounds that exist that are already produced by nature somehow, and it's just batshit insane. For example, ginkgo will never shut up about their first contract, because it's probably their biggest one, uh, rose oil. The way we used to make rose oil and the way it's still made in some places is insane. You manually peel a rose bud and then you take all the petals, you arrange them on the floor of a, a warehouse. They have to be like, they can't be layered on top of each other. So single layer. And then you wait months while they dry off and then you have to go process them and squeeze them. And so, like yeah pretty much anything's better than that. Um, (laughs) So like, these microbes, go for it, go nuts. And and the advantage if it's already made in nature is you know that there's a pathway to do it in nature, right? So you can try and cut and paste that into a bacteria or a microbe of some kind. Um, So I'll totally give them that. Like that's sure, go nuts. And that's where these companies have had great success. The problem is one in $10 on earth is spent on chemical and materials manufacturing. And the overwhelming vast majority that has nothing to do with biology whatsoever. And so, that's where enzymes come in. This modular integratable system that, you know, if it's step nine, that's your problem, just replace step nine, don't touch anything else. That's the actual issue. Um, And so it's a far more laser focused application of that. Um, Not to say they won't make money, but they won't make quite as much.
1: So you, you came out of the NSF program and you decided like, okay, this is the actual problem. Yeah, exactly.
0: Enzyme engineering is actually the problem. It's the ability to quickly and efficiently deliver basically super smart catalysts that can do something, build molecules that no one can build right now. Um, And so when I started thinking about the technology aspect of it, part of what I took away from touring these other synthetic biology companies was this whole idea of, like, well, you know, they're spending so much money. They have these huge rooms full of robots running all these experiments, and they're still not doing that much. I mean, they're running maybe tens of thousands of experiments a month. And so when I started looking at what the actual core bottleneck was, it turned out to be the analytics.
1: So you could spend... Two years just collecting all the data you need to collect, and then you've got such a leg up on everyone else.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, we're right now generating more data per month than anyone else on Earth by a substantial margin, and that will only increase by orders of magnitude. And the reason why that's possible at its core, like the the most, the reason that contributes the most is thinking about the back end analytics. So your challenge at the end of the day is when you run an experiment in this industry, the thing you would like to check is, did your product get made? Right, just yes or no, that's the simplest possible check. You wanted it to be made, did it get made? Yes or no. Uh, and the way you do that typically is mass spectrometry. It's just a general technique. It tells you what molecules are in your sample Is a gross oversimplification of what it does. And most mass spec machines will give you one sample will let you test one sample every two to five minutes. Two minutes on the book, really, because they're so mechanical and prone to failure, more like five minutes. So that means that there's 10,000 minutes, 10,100 and something minutes a week. Um, So you're looking at 200 experiments a week, something like that. That might be wrong. Is that, is it per week or per day? The point is it's it's not that many. It's not that many, Exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, like best case scenario, you could set up billions of experiments if you wanted, and you're kind of fucked. There's no way you're gonna. So then, what that does is it influences the entire design of the facility. The reason why those robots aren't being used close to one hundred percent of their uptime is because there's no reason for them to be used one hundred percent of their uptime. You, you, it changes the way you think about. So you've the got the facility. bottleneck
1: of the mass spectrometer. Exactly,
0: because it does not matter. It doesn't matter. You can't do that many experiments. So why would you design around that concept in the first place? And so what we've done is through this massive parallelization is build a novel form of mass spectrometry that is unbelievably fast through that kind of parallelization, able to read many, many, many experiments at the same time. And so what that enables us to do is say, okay, well, now we're actually thinking about millions of experiments a day. So how do we build an automated system around that? How do we, and actually the problem now is, I mean, we've gotten to the point we hit 250 experiments per second at one point. Um, that is no longer the bottleneck. Like that is no, we are nowhere near that speed right now because now you have to make 250 experiments a second. And that is a huge problem. Um, that actually turns out to be a nightmarishly difficult problem, but we're getting there. But you've shifted the bottleneck. Right, exactly. Now the bottleneck is much more tenable. Now it's about how do you paralyze, how do you standardize, and how do you rethink the hardware automation level to prepare that many experiments to be analyzed in the first place. And other problems start happening there, like um, 250 per second is 150 million experiments per month. If you think about the raw spectral output, you're talking about petabytes a week. So now you're talking about like seriously even just data pipelining problems, which have never occurred in this industry before.
1: So what's once you have all this data, what's the
0: next step? So uh, so we're at millions of experiments a month now. We're going to be at billions of experiments per month uh, by you know end of 2021, start of 2022, and somewhere on that range. And when you think about that amount of experimental capacity, you don't actually need that to service customers, right? If you need a billion shots on goal, you're probably doing something wrong. And so why it's so important to continue scaling throughput is this indexing concept, this idea that Eventually, the factory, 99% of what it's doing has nothing to do with customers. Instead, it's every day the AI selects 5,000 enzymes from nature it's never seen before, and 5,000 it's designed, and tests them, and tests millions of mutants of all of them. Uh, and Indexes or maps biological space, um, pushing the boundary of what's possible. Because at the end of the day, an enzyme is a thermodynamic machine that rearranges atoms. That's all it's doing. There are enzymes out there that can do silicon silicon bond formation. It's not really clear how they do it, but we know that they do it. What if we change the way semiconductors are manufactured? What if we, you know, at a tree outside when it needs iron, it doesn't have a mine in China it relies on. It extracts iron from the local environment. That process uses enzymes, these little nanomachines. Um, So you start thinking about how do you push the boundaries to the point where it's hard to call them enzymes anymore. They're really, truly nanomachines, little nanotechnological robots that just rearrange atoms at the end of the day. So that's what the purpose is of the system, is this constant expansion and mapping of the space of possibilities. And that goes back
1: to the initial scarcity conversation.
0: Exactly. That's the connection, is that once you start building this kind of a technology, you should be able to start dramatically reducing the cost of goods for most products on Earth. And not just the cost of goods, but I mean, imagine being able to have a manufacturing plant anywhere on Earth for any product right there's shipping as well like part of the reason why there are there's such a huge HIV epidemic in Africa one it's for complex political reasons and some pharma companies are very much guilty of negligence two it's shipping logistics a lot of these HIV medications need to be refrigerated and that's really hard to do Three, it's actually, they're expensive to make, um, and they are really hard to make in Africa where they would be most effectively used. And so what if you had shipping container-sized factories that are just shipped to somewhere where there's a need for some antiretroviral for HIV, and you plug it into power, you put in a feedstock of some material, whatever's available there, some maybe petrochemical maybe or not, and it chugs out the drug upon demand. That would be the general idea.
1: Bobby, thanks so much. Of course. Founders First is a Project 1517 Fund. 1517 Fund is a venture capital fund backing founders at the earliest stages of their careers and companies. If you are a founder, hacker, maker, or scientist working outside of universities, you can reach out to us at 1517fund.com. That's 1517fund.com. We'd love to talk to you.